this Shabbat, I am going to be giving a message from the chapter that most people probably, when, they're, when they say, I'm going to read through the Bible. So they start reading through the Bible, and they reach this chapter, and they look around to make sure no one's in the room, and then they just flip to the next chapter. It's, it's the chapter of all of those guys who lived for a really long time and had a lot of kids. It says so-and-so lived for so many years and he got married and he had his first son and then he had a bunch of other sons and daughters and then he lived for, you know, six or seven hundred more years and then he died. That's the chapter I'm going to be basing my message off of. And I'm, I'm going to be springboarding from that into the gospel from, you could say, a fairy tale perspective. A true fairy tale. And uh, if you are a dreamer, if you... If, if fairy tales really spoke to you when you were young, if uh, you're very imaginative, like a right brain type of person, you're going to love this. If you are a facts guy, if you are something of an ontologist or an uh, etymologist or a historiographist, you're going to love this also. This is going to be really fun for left and right brained people. Um, Wanna wanna springboard, Genevieve already mentioned this, but uh, we, we received a couple of boxes of the Delich Hebrew English Gospels in the mail. It's published by Vine of David, and it's basically taking the Hebrew translation of the Gospels by Franz Delich and uh, putting it in the right hand side and then giving an excellent translation on the left hand side that uh, that really gives a good feel for the original Hebrew. So, you know, it, it has the name of Yeshua, and uh, it has a lot of great notes, uh, awesome maps and things in the back, too. Back too. Yes, that's right. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, what are, they, what are they commonly called? They're called Gospels, yes. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called Synoptic Gospels. So I want to I want to look at the gospel with you today. Uh, the gospel means what? Good news. Good news. That's right. It's good news. It's like a true story because all news is a story, eh? At the very least, it's a snippet of a story, and it's well. If you turn on the if you watch the media, it's usually a bad news. So it's not really the gospel. But the idea there is it's a story. It's a true story, and. The best way I've discovered to understand the Holy Scriptures is to look at them from the perspective of being a book of stories, true stories, historical narratives. You'll notice if, if the intent was to write a book of systematic theology, the Bible is a total flop. In terms of systematic theology, you can't just read it like that. You can, you can find all the major truths and you can infer the details. But in terms of just laying out systematic doctrine, it's not what it is. It's a book of stories. And sometimes, if you're reading through it for the first time, it seems like a hodgepodge mix of stories. It's like, how does this fit into the big picture? What is this supposed to mean? And that's the joy of it. That's why it takes decades and decades of reading through the scriptures and meditating on them before sometimes some things even begin to come into perspective. Uh, you could see that every story in the scriptures is a chapter in the great meta-story, like in the overarching plot of the relationship between the Creator and, uh, and His people. Have you ever noticed that there are certain types of literature that have a lot of appeal? Uh, a couple that I thought of were fairy tales, have a lot of appeal to children, and sometimes to older people. 
Disney comes out with a movie, let's say based on some fairy tale, and it isn't just kids that love it. It isn't just kids that get a little teary-eyed at it sometimes, eh? Um, Myths. Every culture has its myths. Stories that are larger than life. Stories about heroes. Stories about how the cosmos came to be and why things are the way they are. Myths really have an appeal for people. Um, Epics. Um, there are movies that would qualify as epics. They're stories with grand themes. They're stories with great drama. They're stories with, with noble heroes. They're stories of battle and courage and romance and things like that. Epic movies. The, these things, have you ever noticed, these things capture people's hearts. These things bring tears to people's eyes. These are the things that we tell our children when they're growing up. Why is that? I, I want to go back over those three categories with you and just shout out to me in a word or two what it is about these things that are attractive. A fairy tale. Like, what is attractive about a fairy tale? Happy ending? Bad guy and good guy? The prince always saves the girl? Yeah? Unless you're, unless you're um, reading the Grimm Brothers fairy tales. Oh, those are horrible. And those are, those are, but those are a different category. Those are more like, um, yeah, Grimm fairy tales. Let's put it at that. Good always prospers, yeah. How about myths? What is it about myths that capture a culture that, that, that last for centuries, that are told tens of thousands of times over campfires, etc.? Until things came to be. There's mystery, yeah. Yeah, they answer questions of life. You call those ontological questions, questions of existence. Hidden truth, yeah, often there are underlying hidden truths. Fear, for sure, yeah. They keep kids in so they don't run around after dark. Those are um, very useful myths. Um, uh, how about epics? Epic movies or epic stories? What is it about epics that really grab people's hearts? Yeah, that's true. People like emotion. It brings a sense of reality. Often when people are in a height of emotion, it's when they feel most alive and like they really exist. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's excellent. Um, I like to look at the story of the scriptures and all of the sub-stories. I like to look at the story of the gospel from those perspectives sometimes. Not that it's false, like a lot of myths or, or fairy tales or epics, but the elements in fairy tales and myths and epics that capture people's hearts and that cause them to last sometimes for millennia, it's, people's hearts are looking for something. And that something is to be found in the story of the gospel. All of those elements are to be found in the gospel. And... The gospel sometimes, you know, we'd say, okay, the gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, or the gospel is the New Testament. But actually, the gospel goes all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, We talked a couple weeks ago about how the promise to the woman that her seed would one day crush the serpent's head. The early believers called that the proto-evangelion. Everybody say proto-evangelion. It's like like the, the early... Gospel, You know, the Evangelion is the gospel in Greek, right? So it's like the prototype of the gospel right there. And uh, here's, here's another scripture to contemplate. I know we've talked about this one before. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, if we want to flip to that, um, verses 2 and 6. This is what Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 and 6 have to say. Okay, it says, For indeed we have had good news, that's the gospel, preached to us just as they also. Who's they? The people of Israel, the generation that emerged from Egypt. But the word they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't united by faith in those who heard. So get that. The people of Israel emerging from Egypt 
had the gospel preached to them. It goes on in verse 6 to say, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news, who had the gospel preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, and, and then it goes on from there. So the point is, every generation that has had interactions with the creator of the universe have heard the good news. They have had the gospel preached to them. And when you study the Torah, the Pentateuch, from a gospel perspective, from the perspective of those elements that myths and epics and fairy tales just begin to touch on, it will come alive for you, and it will become very relevant in how you communicate the gospel to your extended family, neighbors, co-workers, whoever. So having said that, having established that basis, let's look at Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to crack the code for how it communicates the gospel. This is all of Genesis chapter 5. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I'll read a couple of verses with you from the beginning and the end. Genesis chapter 5 begins by saying, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In Hebrew, book is sefer. Everybody say sefer. The generations of Adam is toldot. Everybody say toldot. Adam. It means like the generations. It's the historical narrative or account. All of these things are wrapped up in toldot. Now, this is, the, this is interesting because this chapter, it begins by saying this is the book. This was probably like a standalone record that was preserved from generation to generation, perhaps orally, perhaps written down on some type of material. We don't know. But this is like a standalone chapter in the early, in the early um, records of the Torah. And it's a chapter that we often skip over because it has a bunch of names and a bunch of ages and you can kind of get lost in the middle, eh? Here's, here's something cool. The book of Matthew opens with this same Hebrew expression. The book of Matthew opens by saying, this is the book of the generations of Yeshua the King. That's a very Hebraic way of, uh, of communicating. So it's the exact same idea. In Hebrew it's like, Zeh, Sefer, Toldot, Yeshua, HaMashiach, or in this case, uh, Adam. Actually, this is kind of cool. In Greek, the Gospel of Matthew opens by saying, the Biblos of the Genesis of Jesus Christos. Biblos is the book that we get Bible from. Genesis is the book that we get Genesis from. So it's kind of cool to think about that in, in, in the Greek term. So I want to go with you for a moment. We're going to take a couple of side thoughts on here to build our thought, okay? I'm going to go into side thought talking about names. Uh, everybody in this room has a name. Uh, most of us have three or maybe even four names. If your parents maybe couldn't decide on what your middle name was going to be, you got two middle names or, uh, or something like that. So everybody in this room has a name. Now, na- every name is indigenous to a specific language. Like every name is a thread in the fabric of a group's language. So like some of the names in this room, just shout out to me, what language is your name from? Hebrew. Hebrew. French? German? German? English? English? Scottish. Hmm? Scottish, are good. Got a Scot in the room? Hebrew, Hebrew. Wow, there's a lot of Hebrew names in this room. Jairus, his name is probably from the Greek, which is originally from the Hebrew name Yair. Yeah. And Levi's his middle name. Very cool. Okay. Now, here's something really important. Names have meanings in their original language. That's a no-brainer, right? It's kind of cool sometimes to ask someone what their name means if you don't know what it means. It may communicate to you something about that person. And I don't know, people like, people, 
People feel good when they ask what their name means. It's like, wow, you actually care about me. Yeah. So, let's scroll over here. Okay, do you see this? I, 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 I emboldened all the names in this chapter. Take note of those names in this chapter. And remember, names are part of a language, and names have meanings. Now, Genesis chapter 11. Tirza and I had a blast this last week reading through Genesis chapter 11 in Hebrew, breaking it down by word by word, and then drawing pictures. So I'll, I'll, give, I'll, show, I'll show you, if you can imagine. So over here we had like the Teva, the ark, and then there was Noah and his wife, and they built a little home out of stones, and he had his little vineyard with the incident that happened there, and uh, the, the Mizbeach, the altar. And then way, way, way over here, all of his children had traveled, and his grandchildren, and they'd gone way over far away to a really nice big plain. And they were all building houses there, and they said, we don't want to get scattered all over the earth. We want to stay together. And we want to reach heaven all by ourselves. So we're going to build a migdol. We're going to build a tower. And we're not going to use stones like Noah, uh, Abba Noah did. We're going, to, we're going to make bricks. So they were, they were making bricks out of mud. And they built this big tower. And you know the story. The creator of the universe said, let's go down and have a look at the tower they're building. I, I get such a kick out of that that he actually said, let's go down and let's have a look at this construction project. I think it tells us something about him. And you know the story. He said... These people, they're Amichad, they're one people, and they have one language. If this is what they began to do, nothing will be impossible for them. And when you're dealing with unregenerate humanity, that's not a good thing. So he confused their languages to scatter them all across the earth, and that's how we had the genesis of national entities. You know the story. Now, this is a big question that most people never think about. What was the language that they spoke before the Tower of Babel, before the creation of international languages? Most people, if that thought does cross their mind, probably think, who cares? Or they think, I don't know, how can we know? Or if they're, uh, if they're King James only, they think, well, of course it was Old English from 600 years ago. Just joking. But actually, here's, here's something very important. This is part of Christian heritage that is overlooked. Early Christian theologians had a theory about what the original language of humanity was. Okay, the Latin term for original language is lingua prima. Everybody say lingua, lingua. prima. Right? I, so that's, so the, early, the early Christian theologians had a theory about this. So did Jewish thinkers and continue to have today. So there, there is an established tradition in Christianity and Judaism about what the lingua prima is. Would you like to think about that with me for a second? Okay, let's think about that for a second. And then we'll continue on with our, with our look at fairy tales. I'm going to give you profiles of four people. The first one is Jerome, who was the brainchild of the early Roman Catholic Church. Jerome lived in the 400s. He translated the Bible into Latin. Uh, he, were, yeah, anyway, I won't go into the details of that. He was a very historically well-versed man. Incredibly brilliant. And uh, in Opera Omnia, one of his works, 730b, he expressed his view that Hebrew was the parent of all the other languages. So this is like early brainchild of the Roman Catholic Church. Hebrew is the parent of all the other languages. Uh, the Venerable Bede. Who knows who the Venerable Bede was? lived in the six, seven hundreds around there. He was, he's what, who's generally called the father of English history. He was like the first well-known English historiographer. 
And uh, he, had, he was famous for supposedly having read every book that there was to read, like every book in existence. This was his, this was his reputation. Uh, the Venerable Bede had this to say about Hebrew. Hebrew was the prima lingua, the prime or first language of the human race. Later it was disrupted and dispersed at Babel as a punishment for still another sin of pride. And from that disruption there arose the current multiplicity of languages coexisting with Hebrew, Adam's original tongue. So, from, from the perspective of the father of English history, Hebrew was Adam's original tongue. It's interesting. Uh, Dante Alighieri, how many of you have heard of him? How many of you have read something by Dante? The Divine Inferno is a famous book of his. Uh, if, you, if you want, like, kind of classical... Uh, Bible-based horror. It's a great book. I read it when I was 15 or 16. Excellent poetry. Um, Dante Alighieri, he, was, he, was, um, he, he encountered this question of why are there Hebrew words in the Greek New Testament? Words like Hosanna or Sabaoth. These are actually Hebrew words. And this was, this was his explanation. This form of speech, that is to say Hebrew, was inherited by the sons of Eber and called Hebrew after him. It remained their peculiar possession after the confusion of the Tower of Babel, so that our Savior, who is their descendant in his humanity, might use a language of grace and not of confusion. The Hebrew language then was formed by the lips of those who were the first to speak. So in the perspective of Dante Alighieri, this famous Italian and Catholic poet and thinker from the, uh, when did he live? It was like the 11-1200s, I think. Um, his understanding was that Yeshua, as a descendant of Eber, spoke the original language. That was a language of... I like that. He called it a language of grace. And not of confusion. Formed by the lips of those who were the first to speak. Uh, Dante, had a, Dante had an opinion that the first word ever spoken by, by Adam, the father of humanity, was the word El. Which is translated generally as what in English? God. It might make sense. I mean, here's the creator of the universe forming the first human being out of, out of clay, sculpting him, and then breathing his breath of life into him. I, I imagine when Adam opened his eyes for the very first time, perhaps he saw something of the creator. So it would make sense that his spirit would recognize his creator, and in that instance he would say, El, or something like that. But that was Dante's perspective. Um, the second president of Harvard University, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Harvard has uh, had a very strong emphasis on Hebrew in its first century or century and a half of existence. In fact, that was, its, that was like its big drawing card. Uh, the famous English universities didn't have a very good uh, Hebrew program, but Harvard did. Charles Chauncey, the second president of Harvard, who lived from 1592 to 1672, when he was appointed president in 1654, requested that a chapter of the Hebrew Bible be read in Hebrew during morning chapel services. Isn't that cool? So in the early century of Harvard, every morning when they had their chapel service, they would read a chapter of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. Um, Chauncey also introduced a topic for Master of Arts studies entitled, Is Hebrew the Oldest Language? That continued to be available until 1791. So this, this, is just a, this is just a little snatch of some different towering figures in history, especially in Christian history, that believe that Hebrew was the original language, the uh, lingua prima. Now here's the question. I mean, okay, like, duh. If someone loves Hebrew, of course they're going to be like, yeah, Hebrew is the original language. Like, it would be pretty easy to have a bias and say that, right? The question is, is there, was there any evidence 
that maybe Hebrew was the original language? What were these guys basing their conclusions on? And there actually is a really big clue. And it's in Genesis chapter 5 right here. See these guys' names? All of them are Hebrew names. They are threads that are inextricably woven into the fabric of the Hebrew language. And all of these guys' names have meanings, not in English, not in Latin, not in Swahili, in Hebrew. That's actually a very strong item of evidence that Hebrew may have been the original language that humanity was created to speak. Now saying that, like, I I love Hebrew, right? I, I study Hebrew, I teach Hebrew, but I'm not like... I'm not a Hebrew freak, okay? Um, Yeshua created the languages of the world. He speaks to people in their own language. Uh, it's, the, it's the whole story of the incarnation. He comes to people and he speaks to them where they're at, right? So I'm not saying Hebrew, Hebrew only or whatever. I'm just saying, I, I'm trying to give you a historical perspective on this and say, could it be that Hebrew was the original language? Because if it was, that's something worth knowing. Then maybe that's even relevant. Yeah. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at these names and their meanings on two levels. We're going to look at it on the stark level, which means we'll just say, okay, this is the name, this is the meaning, and uh, this is the etymology of this word. Then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at the meanings of each of these names, and we're going to weave a a gospel fairy tale based on the meanings of these names. How does that sound? Okay, let's, let's do that. So the first name we have on the list is Adam. We can flip it. We have a little thing, Adam. Um, His name comes from Adama, meaning earth, ground, soil, or dirt, specifically of a red color. The Hebrew word for red is Adom. Everybody say Adom. What could this mean? Oh, probably simply means that Adam had red blood. He was a red-blooded human being. It might also mean that he wasn't a, a pale white Caucasian. In fact, based on the meaning of his name, he may have, been, he may have had a red tip. Uh, Tone skin. So, you know, next time you're talking with like a First Nations person, let them know that. Let them know, you know, in our in our in our in our history, the original father of all humanity was named Adam, and his his name in our language means red. So we actually think he may have been a red man. I, I tell my Cree friends that, and they love it because you're connecting on their level, right? So that's that's something to to uh, put in your communication uh, purse if you have a communication purse. Um, next is uh, Cain. Okay, yeah, yeah Cain. Uh, Cain means to get, acquire, or gain. And it actually explicitly says why Hava named him that. Now the man knew his wife Hava, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten, there's that word, a man with Yahweh. Genesis 4.1. Next name is Abel, or Hevel. It's from the verb haval, which means to breathe out. It has the connotation of being vain or a waste, like a breath. Just something that you exhale and it's gone, it dissipates. Next name, Seth. It's from the verb shatat, meaning to set. Actually, did you notice that? The English word set is exactly the same as the Hebrew word. Put, place, or appoint. And we read in Genesis, Bereshit 4.25, Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Set, for she said, Elohim has set, set me another seed in place of Hevel, for Cain killed him. Next in the list of names of these really old guys is Enosh. This is from the Hebrew verb Anash, which means to be sick, chronically ill, 
or incurable. Now, as we read through these, just be asking yourself, why were these children giving the names that they were given in the first couple of generations of humanity? Uh, could it have been that Enosh was, maybe he was a sickly baby? Or it could have been that maybe Adam or Eve had their first flu when they were, pre- when, when they were pregnant with him or something. Who knows? You kind of have to try and read into the text. It's like, wow, that was brutal. I got sick. Morning sickness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Morning sickness, sure. Okay, next name, Mahalalel. It's a contraction of the Hebrew word for praise, which is halal. It's also the word to shine. Praise and shine are the same word, same concept in Hebrew. Um, we know, we, everybody knows that word from hallelujah, and El, short form for the Almighty God. Mahalalel. Next name in this list is actually... Um, Okay, there was a name I skipped over, Canaan, just because he, it's the same root as, as Cain, right? Cain and Canaan are the same name. So then we have uh, Jared or Yered, which is from the Hebrew verb Yerad, meaning to descend. What was, what's the name of the river just to the east of Israel? The Jordan. the Jordan. In Hebrew, you say the Yardane. And the Yardane is named from this Hebrew root Yerad, to descend. Why? Because you go down to get to the Jordan. Kind of makes sense. Jadeh. Yeah, well, French came from the original Hebrew also, for sure. Uh, next name, Enoch. In Hebrew is Chanoch. It starts and ends with the horky sound. So everybody say, Chanoch. Chanoch. Great. I love that name, actually. It's from the verb Chanach, which means to dedicate, consecrate, initiate, train, and teach. It's a big word in Hebrew. It takes, all, it, it takes like five English words to give you the feel. Um, we celebrate a festival commemorating the defeat of the Greek forces by the Maccabees and the rededication of the altar. What's the name of that festival in Hebrew? Hanukkah. Hanukkah is from this root. It's the rededication of the altar. Today, often in the Jewish world, Hanukkah is kind of watered down. It's like, you know, it's kind of about just like tolerance and peace and about, you know, light, festival of lights, and eating a lot of oily donuts and stuff. But actually, Hanukkah is a very, it's a, it's a revolutionary occasion. It commemorates radical acts by radical men and the rededication of the altar, which, if were to happen today, a lot of people would freak out about. So remember that about Hanukkah. Uh, next name in our list is Methuselah. In Hebrew, it's Metushalach. Everybody say Metushalach. Yeah. And actually his name is a contraction of three names. Mate in Hebrew means death or the verb of dying. Uh, U is the Hebrew vav means and. And shalach means sent. For instance, uh, Yeshua's apostles. An apostle in Hebrew is a shaliach, someone who's sent. So mate, u, shalach. Death and sent is what this guy's name means. Quite a name. Hey, how many, how many people would name their children something like that today? It, kind of, it has the connotation of when he dies, it will be sent. I'll bet everybody would meet this kid and they'd be like, wow, I can't wait till he dies to see what happens. Something's going to happen. You know? Anyway. Yeah. Okay. The, the, actually, the fascinating thing about this name is all of these guys, their lifespans when they were born and when they, were die- they died were recorded. And when you read when Methuselah died, the year after he died, the flood hit planet Earth. So you have to remember, who is Methuselah's dad here? Enoch was his dad. 
And Enoch was a prophet. He walked so closely with the Holy One that the day came when he just took him. So it would make sense that his son would have a prophetic name. And indeed it did. His, his son's prophetic name was a warning to the world that after this guy dies, something's going to happen. Something's going to be sent. And sure enough, the year after he died, the flood was sent and it wiped out everybody who didn't repent. Uh, Methuselah, his firstborn son, was named Lamech. It's from the verb Lamech, which means to... Uh, to, uh, okay, mach, sorry, to hit, strike, or wound. So, lemech means hitting, striking, or wounding. And then finally, we have one of the stars of early history, Noach. Everybody say Noach. His name means rest or comfort. And it explicitly says in the text in Genesis 5.21, now he called his name Noach, saying, this one will give us rest, relief, comfort from our work and from the toil of our hands from the ground which he always cursed. So I guess in his family, there, they actually had messianic expectations from Noah. They must have assumed that he would be the seed of the woman and that he would actually give them rest from the degenerate state of the cosmos and from the, like the whole problems with weeds and stuff like that, uh, excessive toil. So, yeah. So, okay, so on a stark level, on a linguistic level, these are these guys' names and these are the meanings of their names. Now, I want to back up with you to the beginning, if you want to back up again to Adam. And we are going to weave a tale. I'm going to tell you a fairy tale from the meanings of these names. And just see if it doesn't resonate with something in your heart and with what you know of humanity's experience. So, Adam, uh, his name means red. Uh, What does the the color red represent in our society? Just shout out some words to me here. Blood. Hmm? Rage. Rage. Warning. Warning. Stop. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Tomatoes. Hmm? Tomatoes. Yeah. That's another one. Our natives. A gang color. Okay. Yeah, you know, we have, we have some expressions in the English language. Uh, painting the town red would be one expression. Red there means like living really passionately, maybe even on the wild side. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's story about the red letter that was placed on the forehead of the adulteress. Uh, in our culture, often red symbolizes passion, the human passions. Someone who is maybe overly alive. When you think about blood and, and the heartbeat, you often think about life or someone who's alive. So that's very true of Adam. Uh, the, the idea there is Adam was a red-blooded human being, just like we are. He was a passionate person. He was deeply alive. So based on that, let's say, okay, and then he, he named his wife Hava, which also means alive. What would be like the English equivalent of someone who's really alive? Like something like vivacious, I would say. Okay, so let's say that this fairy tale is about a princess named Vivacious. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, tell you a fairy tale about a princess named Vivacious. Now, let's look at the next word here. So, Vivacious. She's a girl that is. She's a princess who's really alive, deeply alive. She's a princess who sometimes gets overly emotional, who gets upset, who feels overwhelmed by passion sometimes. That's that's Princess Vivacious. Now, I'm going to introduce the villain of this story to you in a little bit. But for now, you know something went terribly wrong in the life of Princess Vivacious. And she feels something deeply in her heart that's missing. And she can't even put her finger on it, but something is missing. 
It's like she has this need. She needs something. She needs somebody. And her life is this long... Ever since this thing happened and this need was birthed inside of her, her life was this long story of running from thing to thing to try and fill that need. Uh, Shopping. She would go shopping and she would buy thousands of dollars on the kingdom credit card. Her Abba would have to have the gates of the palace locked so she couldn't get out to the mall. But when she'd come back with these bundles of clothes and all of these items, it just she'd go to bed that night and she would still feel the same. And she would play with her toys for a little bit, but it would never satisfy her. And she would get on, and she just felt this need. She felt a need for somebody. She just thought, I need to get somebody. I need to have somebody for myself. And so she would, she would get on the internet and she would get on singles dating sites and he would look at all of the handsome princes out there and imagine maybe he's my one if only I had him I would be happy this deep need in me would be satisfied she would get on Facebook chat and she would chat with dozens of handsome princesses from all over the world who wanted to court her affections she would go out on dates and she would feel this temporary satisfaction when she had that attention when she was in that relationship but it would always fall flat and people would always let her down And she was always left with this deep need for something or somebody. I have to get something. I have to get somebody. Okay? Now, I'm weaving the fairy tale based on the meanings of these names, but Hava named her firstborn son this because she got somebody. I think there's something deep inside the human psyche where it's like, I have to get somebody. I have to have somebody. Unfortunately, we often place that desire on another human being whether it be a, a potential spouse or a spouse or someone that, or children sometimes, someone that will let us down. And of course, we should cultivate a healthy desire for friends, for spouses, etc. But ultimately, it is our Creator that can only true, truly fill our hearts. Not shopping or singles, dating sites or whatever, right? Okay, so let, let's continue with our story here. Um, as time progressed, um, Princess Vivacious fell into depression. She would just walk around the castle, moping, with her shoulders drooped, <sighs> sighing all the time. Whenever she walked past the castle guards, they could always listen and hear her sighing. She was really depressed. She fell into a depression. If you want to flick to the next one. She's <sighs> always sighing, breathing out. She said, you know, I've, I've, I've maxed out my, my father the king's credit card. I've dated dozens of guys. And everything's a waste. Everything's pointless. Nothing is worth it. I don't even know why I get up in the morning. She'd sleep until 12, 1, 2 o'clock. There's no reason to live. She's totally depressed. Princess Vivacious was not feeling very vivacious. She just felt like life is pointless. And maybe some of us have experienced that. I I know in my teens, I was extremely depressed for months at a time. I would write in my journal, and my tears would stain my words and mess up the ink on the paper. And I just saw in the light at the end of the tunnel. I thought, what's the... I don't don't want to live. I don't want to grow up. There's no point. It was a spiritual thing for sure. But um, but that's something that we as human beings face. that, That experience that's embedded in the name of Abel. Now, there was hope for the princess. I'll tell you a little about her history now. There was a wicked witch in this fairy tale. 
and she lived deep in the forest. And every now and then they would see her lurking on the edges of the forest beyond the fields that surrounded the castle. And on the edges of the forest was a tree. And on the tree were golden apples. And Princess Vivacious, her father, who was, who was very wise, very sagely, very kind, he said, Princess Vivacious, whatever you do, you must not go to the tree with the golden apples. You must not eat from that tree. And you just have to trust me on this one. Well, one time she was out playing in the meadows and chasing butterflies and playing. And she happened to fall into the general vicinity of the tree with the golden apples. And would you know it, but a handsome prince appeared, seemingly out of nowhere. He just kind of glided out of the forest. And he engaged her in a conversation. And he started raising questions in Princess Vivacious's mind about whether her father really loved her, about whether he was really a good dad, about whether he was really trustworthy. He pointed out, your father's so busy all the time, he barely has time for you, administrating the affairs of the kingdom. He's just not there for you. And look, there are even some of these, these men in the kingdom that are bad, and he throws them in jail. How could he be a loving father when he throws people in jail? And he began to, the handsome prince began to whittle her down. Until finally, she thought, I'm going to eat from the golden apple. And she stretched out her hand, and she ate from the golden apple. And her life began to turn into that nightmare when the handsome prince transformed into the the gowlish, wicked witch. And she screamed and shrieked with laughter, and she disappeared back into the forest. And there was something wrong after that. And the princess vivacious felt that her father, she she couldn't look at her father the same way. She didn't have that intimate friendship with her father. She just couldn't get close to him. She knew she was hiding something. She knew there was something dark inside of her. And there was a great great darkness that fell on her after that because the wicked witch, when she ate that golden apple, cast a spell on her. She had some kind of, even from deep in the forest, the wicked witch had some kind of influence over Princess Vivacious. She made her feel horrible. She made her feel empty. She, she injected wild, weird thoughts into her mind about the people that she loved and that loved her. And her father was concerned. She just, something in her went twisted. And Princess Vivacious knew it too. And her father, her father knew what had happened. He was very in- intuitive, the great king. And he said, The wicked witch, I never told you about her, but I see that you have inter- had interactions with her. And she has cast a spell on you. And there's only one way to break that spell. The wicked witch has cast a spell on you that can only be broken by your death. On the day that you die, the spell will be broken. But I don't want you to die, because you're my daughter and I love you. I've never told you this, but I have a crown prince, my eldest son, and I've sent him far away to another kingdom to administrate that kingdom and to to care for its its citizenry. And I think I may have an answer for you. I will send for the crown prince. And when he comes, he's going to break the spell of the wicked witch and set you free. That's the concept between Seth. Someone would come. Someone that the princess was hoping for that would break the spell, that would crush the serpent's head, that would set her free from the one that she had given into. 
Uh, looking at the next name, Enosh. Ever since Princess Vivacious fell under the spell of the Wicked Witch, ate the golden apple, she was heart sick. She just felt sick inside. She felt something twisted deep in her soul. And often it would manifest in physical sickness. She would fall, fall into horrible, horrible fits of sickness where she'd lie in bed for days. She could barely eat. High fevers. And, and she would get better and then it would happen again. And she knew it's the wicked witch and that spell from a distance that has that thing inside of her that's causing this. Next name. And in the midst of all of this experience, all of this, this nightmare that Princess Vivacious was living through, it took a long time. The wise king sent for his son, his crown prince. He summoned him from a long distance, and it took him years to arrive. He had to fight great battles through foreign lands to reach his father's kingdom. And finally the day arrived that he, he came down the highway through the forest and he stepped into the fields and the guards all began shouting, it's the crown prince, he's coming, he's coming. And no one knew why he was coming except for the father and Princess Vivacious. But she knew, her heart leaped. She said, it's him. It's the one I've been hoping for for all these years. He's finally come. And something's going to change. The spell of the wicked witch is going to be broken. So, so it happened. The crown prince came. He descended from his great throne, administrating his father's distant kingdom. He came all the way down to their little shire. And he set about getting to know Princess Vivacious. If you want to skip to the next one, and the next one also. He, he began gallantly acquainting himself with her, speaking with her, just a little here and a little there, a kind word or a caring question. And uh, they began to get to know each other. And he wasn't what she expected, he, he had a very noble bearing. He had, a, he had a very kind demeanor, but he wasn't as striking as she thought he would be. He wasn't outstandingly handsome. He was very kind, though. And slowly she grew to love him. Until one day, he took her for a walk in the palace yard. And by then, she was deeply in love with him and she trusted him because she knew his kind heart. And he proposed to her and asked her to marry him. And he said, I've brought this cup with, with me. As we stand here in this vineyard outside the castle, and it's symbolic. If you'll marry me, then you and I will drink from this cup. And it will symbolize that who I am and what I have will become yours. I will be fully yours. And who you are and what you have will become mine. And we'll enter into a mutually exclusive relationship, a covenant in which I become yours and you become mine. And all that my father has will become yours. 
And Princess Vivacious, she recoiled in shock. And he said, you don't understand. I have a wicked heart. I'm a very mean girl. I'm twisted inside. I, I lash out at people and I hurt the ones I love. And I'm under a spell that the wicked witch has caused, thrown on me. If, if I become yours and all that I have becomes yours, then this spell will come into our relationship. And it will haunt us forever. And the only way this spell can be broken is by my death. And the crown prince didn't seem phased at all. He looked at her and he said, I know. If we enter into this betrothal, drinking this cup, pledging that all that is ours shall become each other's, then your spell will come upon me. And I can die on your behalf. So the spell will be broken. And tears came to the Princess Vivacious' eyes. And she said yes. And she consented to marry the prince. That night, the wicked witch came out of the dark forest with her army of trolls and goblins. And the crown prince didn't hide in his castle. He stepped out boldly and he faced the wicked witch and her army. And they took him and they tortured him brutally. And they nailed him to one of the trees on the, outskir- on the outskirts of the forest. And they killed him. And if you want to flick to the next one, the moment he died on that tree at the hands of the wicked witch and the trolls and the goblins, Princess Vivacious was standing on the tower of the castle, screaming, bawling her eyes out, heartbroken. Why does it have to be like this? Will anything really happen? I didn't even really understand what he was talking about when I took the cup, when I drank from the cup. This is the only person I know next to my father who has been kind to me, who has cared, who has won my heart like this. Not like the dozens of suitors I, I played around with. The moment he died, though, she felt something sent to her heart. Something intangible. Something, something stirred inside of her. Something she could barely feel. If you want to flick to the next one. All those years that she had been inwardly stricken, that she had been smitten with sickness physically, that her heart was sick, all those years that she had endured abuse at the hands of these pseudo-quarters, these princes who supposedly would win her heart and supposedly feel that need inside of her and be the person that she needed, it all began to melt. It all began to dissipate. It all began to fly away. And she felt the, the spell of the wicked witch being broken because the prince had taken her curse, because he had died on her behalf. And in that betrothed relationship, all that was hers was his. And all that was his was hers. And his death was counted as her death. And so the spell was broken. And the crown prince hung, broken and bloody, tortured to death on the tree, with the wicked witch and the trolls and the goblins shrieking and screaming and dancing wildly. 
And that isn't the end of the story. It, 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 it would be fantastic if that was the end of the story right there even. That the princess Vivacious walked away free. That the healing came. That the spell was broken. That she came back to her senses. That the dark thing that the wicked witch had placed in her was removed. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because there's a love that's stronger than death. There's a love that's fiercer than the grave. And the love that the crown prince came for, came in for the princess Vivacious was such that it overwhelmed death, that it conquered grave, the grave, and the crown prince came back to life suddenly, in an instant, while Princess Vivacious was bawling, screaming her eyes out, feeling so thankful because she had felt the spell broken. And he came off that tree. And the light that shone from him in this fairy tale knocked the wicked witch so far back that she went hurtling through the trees, knocking them down in her wake. And the trolls and the goblins disappeared. And Princess Vivacious knew that the wicked witch would still be out there. That she would still try and pull people in with her spells. But she knew that for her, the spell had been broken by her prince. And she would never be the same again. And she would never consort with that wicked witch again. In whatever form she came to him, with whatever questions she came to her, with whatever questions the wicked witch would try and pose to the princess. Yeah, Princess Vivacious, next here. For the first time since she ate of that golden apple, she felt relief. She felt a deep rest under her soul as the crown prince strode back across the castle, as the castle erupted in cheers, as the guards were shooting their arrows far out into the forest and shouting at the top of their lungs and throwing their bright-plumed hats in the air. As she saw him coming for her, she felt such gratitude. She felt such trust. She felt relief because salvation had come to her. And she was saved. And her crown prince was alive. And she knew that he would never leave. He would never die. And if he were to go, that he would take her with him. Maybe to the kingdom that his father had entrusted to him to administrate. That's your fairy tale from Genesis chapter 5 about Princess Vivacious, about the great king, about the wicked witch, about the spell. Now, I know I've taken some artistic liberty with the story, right? You're probably like, wait a minute, that doesn't exactly line up with my, my theology or whatever. No worries, it probably doesn't. I'm, I'm just trying to think here. I'm trying to get us to, like, to think in terms of these stories that capture the hearts of children and, and, and humanity. Because the gospel, it's like a fairy tale, but it's better because it's true. And because it's not going to go away. And because the figure in it, who is the hero, is actually the real hero. So, I want to I sum up this concept for you, the meanings of these names in the next slide, and I'll just read this for you. 
This is, this, is, this, is, this is the gospel encoded in the Hebrew meanings of these Hebrew names from Genesis chapter 5. Man, that is Adam, has gotten futility, acquired vanity, purchased waste, that's Cain and Abel, and has been set in sickness, appointed illness, stuck in mortality. That's the meanings of Seth and Enosh. But to his praise, God, El, that is Mahalalel, will descend... Jared, to rededicate, to train men and to teach Enoch that through his death he will send, that is Methuselah, to the stricken and wounded, that Islamic, comfort and rest. When you take those names and you just string them together and you read them in Hebrew, that is the message that is encoded in those names. Is that the story of the gospel? Oh, yeah. Seriously, like, if you're ever having a conversation with someone, and you want to try and communicate this, like, the, the human condition. And what Yeshua has come for, seriously, just like, print this off and just sit down and be like, did you know that in our tradition, the meanings of the first ten guys, when you string them together, tells this story? And then just go over them and say, isn't this true? Like, depression, physical sickness, that inner, inward wounding and damage that we all have. It's something that we all relate to. That is the human condition summed up in the names of these early guys. It's something that we've all experienced as human beings since the fall. But the creator of the universe didn't stay up there. He didn't stay distant. He came down. It's one of the titles of Mashiach. His name is Immanuel. What does that mean? El, Elohim, is with us. He didn't stay up on his throne. He didn't remain in the heavens. He came down to where we are at, in our brokenness, in our pain, in our messed upness. I just coined a new word there. In our dysfunction, in our hatred of him. Like, really, we as humanity thumbed our noses at the creator of the universe. We were his sworn enemies. We hated him. And when we were his enemies, he sent his son to die on our behalf. See, the one thing in this fairy tale maybe that wasn't correct is if Princess Vivacious totally hated her father after that and wanted, it, wanted him to die and totally hated the crown prince. Something about him, she just hated his guts. That would be more like the story. And he still died for it. That's the story of the gospel. What does it say here? Hano, uh, to rededicate. That has the connotation of Yeshua came to rededicate the human race to its original intent which was to worship the Creator, to bring glory to the name of Yahweh, to walk with Him in the garden. That was the original intent of humanity. And we fell from that. And Yeshua came to rededicate us, to Hanachas. What else does it say there? To train men. What did Yeshua do? When He embarked on His mission, He gathered an inner circle of the people who were most devoted to Him, and He began to train them. He began to teach them. And I guarantee you, He began to teach them about the evil one and about what was happening, and about what he had to do to break the curse on humanity. What does it say? From that day on, he began to explain to his disciples that he had to go up to Jerusalem, that he had to be, that he had to be betrayed, that he had to be handed over, that he had to be tortured, that he had to die a brutal death on a Roman uh, cross of execution. So he began to teach his men. He began to train them. And then what did he do? He died. And he died... This is actually cool. There are, two, there are two sides to this. He died so that that comfort could come to us. Who is the comforter? Yeshua. Yeshua, he said, it's better for you that I go so that I can send who to you? 
the Ruach HaKodesh, the Comforter, right? Yeshua, Yeshua died so that he could send the Comforter to us. That's encoded in these guys' names. There's another meaning, though. When Yeshua died, he said, it's better for you that I go so that I can send the Spirit to you. And what happened? He sent the Spirit. He clothed them with power from on high. He empowered them to be his witnesses. And what happened? He did send them out to the nations of the world with this story, with the story that gripped the hearts of millions of people in the first couple of centuries in the Roman Empire. Slaves who had no rights and who were going to die prematurely. Children who were orphans. Rich, affluent people who had everything and were still depressed. This story was sent after the death of Yeshua to the nations. And it, flipped, it began to flip the world upside down. It was unstoppable. So it has that connotation of being sent also. So those who were stricken with sickness, those who were wounded inwardly, those who were damaged, who were damaged goods in so many ways. Yeshua, through his death and through his spirit, changing us from the inside out, making us new people, he gave us relief. He sent rest. He comforted humanity's hearts for all who would receive him. On the basis of his atonement, what does it say? When he died, he didn't just take the penalty for our sins. It wasn't only penal substitutionary atonement, although that it was. He also took our physical ailments. He took our soul sickness. He took every chronic disease that the human race fights. On the cross, Yeshua took all of that into his own person. And he he died from that. It took him to the grave. He took it to the grave. And when he was raised from the dead, it stayed there. Sin stayed there. The power of death stayed there. Sickness and its influence that it can have stayed there. He made provision there for the forgiveness of our sins. He made provision there for the healing of our bodies. He made provision there for us to receive the Ruach HaKodesh, be changed from the inside out, and have eternal life with the Father in his castle, in his kingdom. That's, that's the gospel from Genesis chapter 5. Actually, hold on one sec here. So I'm, that's, that's my message. I just wanted to take what is, for many people, one of the most boring chapters in the, in the Torah. I wanted to bring it to life for you. So, you know, if you're not really into fairy tales, if it's been a long time since you heard one, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if that wasn't your thing, but I think there's something deep in the heart of every person that is still a little child and that does need to hear true fairy tales. What did Yeshua say? If you want to see my kingdom, like if you want to see the world from my perspective, you have to go back to being like a child. You have to repent. And you know, for those of us who are maybe just a little too mature for fairy tales, a little too serious for silly things like that, Yeshua may may actually be saying to us sometimes, in your heart is still a very young person. In your heart is a child that I created to think a certain way, to love life a certain way, to be innocent and free. I want you to get back in touch with that. Could it be? Could it be that sometimes he says that to people? Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.